Hello, friends. My guest today is a Navy veteran, mapmaker, and political enthusiast. He spent around six years evaluating satellite imagery from a Navy ship, checking photos over and over to determine if there was any imminent threat. He has sailed around the tip of South America, lived in many locations up and down the West Coast, currently stitches high-resolution photos taken from a Cessna and creates maps, and is an extremely intelligent resource for all things political. I had a wonderful time sitting down with my friend, Dean Olson. Here he is. Where did you grow up? Uh, already starting with the hard questions. I, um, I kind of grew up all up and down the West Coast, is usually what I say to people. Okay. Um, I, I was born in Southern California in the Orange County area. Okay. Um, lived in Garden Grove. You know, there's a, there's a sublime song about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, all true. Um, but, uh, shortly after that, we moved up to, um, Northern Washington and lived in Bellingham area for, you know, a good chunk of time until I was about 13 years old. And then from there, you know, I wound up down in, um, Southern California again, back in Southern, uh, Southern Orange County that time. Um, and that's where I went to high school. And I guess sort of, that was the period of time growing up. So, you know, I like to say that it was I was just a West Coaster mm-hmm. um, from the start. Did Did you enjoy Southern California, or were you, you were you upset that you had to leave Washington? I was I was upset that I had to leave Washington. I mean, it was a time of life, um, time in my life when you know it would be difficult for any kid to have to sort of uproot and and get out, um, kind of leave behind all your all your friends and and try to have to make new ones. And then you know we weren't really in the same one place uh, in Southern California. So, you know, like we lived in, in Claremont, which is like East L.A. County, lived there for a little while, uh, about 10 months, and then moved again to Southern uh, Southern Orange County in San Clemente. And that's, it, uh, you know, I, w- I, c- I can think about, you know, different ways in which I was excited to be, um, you know, going back to California um, at, at that age. But also, you know, it was really sad to have to, to leave friends and then, you know, struggled to make new friends. So it was, it was a weird sort of, uh, moving around situation. I don't know how many people experience that, uh, having to, to move at kind of various times in that early of an age, but it, it's not, it's not super easy. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's probably easier when you're younger, but once you reach like high school age, you don't really want to uproot and, and, and disappear from all those friends. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause you're just like establishing your, your core group of of, of individuals to hang out with. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I did leave um, San Clemente. In some ways, it gets easier to keep moving around as you, uh, if you've done it so much uh, when you're younger. And I remember feeling, you know, sort of early on when I was like 13, 14, having to, to move from Washington to California, feeling, you know, like combination of like excitement and dread about it, but then almost like a restlessness when I hit like 1920. And, yeah. um, you know, from there, I mean, I've, I've lived, uh, I lived in San Francisco after that. I lived, you know, I, I was in the Navy for some time and, and that, you know, sort of took me over to the East coast and down South too. So, you know, it was, it was sort of, uh, it was, it was a restlessness that, that wasn't, you know, like very easy to, to describe, but, but it was always kind of a, something that I needed to, to keep doing or, or an excitement of, of seeing a new place once you kind of feel like you've used up that old one. Mm-hmm. Was it a culture shock going from Washington to, to Southern California? I imagine Southern California is just just seems like depending on what neighborhood you were in, it would be more um, it j- just uh, maybe 
a higher income mm-hmm. certain people versus, you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. We were, it, it, it was interesting because we did kind of go from being sort of upper middle class in, in Ferndale, which was the actual town that we lived in, mm-hmm. sort of a, a Bellingham suburb, to, you know, I guess lower middle class in, in San Clemente, which, you yeah. know, like a lot of my friends lived in very large, you know, like uh, houses, McMansions and planned communities and stuff like that. And, you know, we lived in an apartment. Um, yeah. So it's a it's a little bit of a culture shock and in some ways kind of opens the door um, to thinking about class before you can even really have that sort of articulated to you. You, you sort of see, um, you know, you, you go from living one way among other people to living a completely different way, um, or, or at least seeing yourself as, as having a different kind of quality of life or, or status, mm-hmm. um, you know, at, at like a, the high school age. Yeah. So what, what pushed you or what, what helped you decide to go into the Navy from there? You, you finished up high school and then you, you went directly in? I did not go directly in after high school. I didn't really do anything directly after high school. I, um, I spent a little bit of time um, working at a, a liquor store, you know, like I didn't really have ambitions. I, I took the year off immediately after college and then uh, tried to go to San Francisco State. And I did that for a year and um, basically flunked out uh, really within the first year. I think my freshman my first semester freshman year GPA was like 1.2 something, you wow. know, sort of uh, kind of kind of indicating to me, uh, you know, maybe not maybe try something else. Um, yeah. So I, you know, I had a lot of fun in San Francisco. Maybe that had something to do with it too. But I wasn't like, you know, I wasn't really a kid with ambitions. I didn't have an idea of what I wanted to do, um, you know, for the, for like a future. I think I was at San Francisco State for like electrical engineering because it makes money, I guess, you know, Mm -hmm. like it's something that smart people do, I suppose. But Well, that's a difficult thing for any 18-year-old in my opinion, like, how are you supposed to know what you're going to do forever when you're that young? Like, your brain hasn't even finished developing. And they expect you to choose a school, choose a profession, go anywhere from, like, forty to $200,000 in debt. Uh, and most people, they finish school and then they don't even use their degree. Yeah. You know what I mean? And the stakes are so high, too. You know, it's sort of like, uh, don't mess that up. You know, like like we're going to simultaneously acknowledge that, you know, 18-year-olds are kind of dumb and don't know what to do. But also, like, here's a really important choice that you can't screw up. Exactly. Go forth and do great things. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I think I felt that kind of pressure when I was picking things I, as far as, like, majors. I, I probably would have gone into, like, an English major, done something literature-related because that was sort of my actual interest. I read a lot of books as a kid. Um, but you were concerned that you wouldn't be able to find a job doing it. Yeah, I think that was primarily my uh, my, my motivation for, you know, thinking something like electrical engineering, um, which, you know, was so short-lived. I, I never even considered that after I failed out and left uh, San Francisco State after that first year. Hmm. So wh- what what path would you end up taking if you were an electrical engineer? I don't even think I got far enough in the program to know what people do in that kind of a job. Huh. I think, you know, I, and this is so long ago, you know, I was I was 19 um, when I when I started the first semester at San Francisco State and then, you know, history intervening and then I didn't go back to school again until I was 29, a uh, good 10 years later. So, wow. you know, like <laughs> part of it is that all that area, all that, you know, time is kind of like lost to me a little bit. I, I, I kind of hardly remember 
um, remember like what was, you know, sort of in the academics, what I was being taught in classes, huh. uh, what they were telling me you can do with this sort of degree. Yeah. Um, probably because I wasn't even really going all that much. I yeah. wasn't interested. And I think that was sort of an early lesson to me and, you know, needing to be really, you know, I guess all in on something, on mm-hmm. a subject, you know, if this is going to be like a subject that you, you, you spend time studying and, and mastering to, to, I guess, get you a job sometime down the road. It's like, if you, if you're not studying and mastering it through your sheer interest, you know, it's going to be really hard to go into the library every day. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you said you had a, a one point something GPA and you flunked out and I mean, what, what did you do after that? You, you just decided that that wasn't for you and you left San Francisco? Yeah, I left San Francisco and I moved down to um, the San Fernando Valley in okay. the Los Angeles area. I moved in with some uh, friends of mine from high school and um, they were going to Cal State Northridge. But, you know, that was kind of my compromise. Like, probably should have moved home, but I moved, you know, closer to home with uh, with some friends of mine kind of trying to stay independent. I really wanted to be in a city. That was part of it was I, you know, I was very tired of living in suburban, um, suburban Southern California, Orange County, but, you know, the San Fernando Valley wasn't much of a compromise. So I was always kind of trying to get into the city and and spend time in LA and just being, you know, closer to it than, than I would have been at my parents' house in in San Clemente was, uh, was, you know, good enough. Um, and, uh, you know, I had a good time down in, uh, down in the Valley, but also was just still kind of equally, you know, uninterested in anything in particular, didn't really have any goals or plans or, you know, any strong interests. I was just gaming a lot <laughs> really yeah. at that period of my life. And, um, you know, just wound up floating, mm-hmm. you know, did okay enough at community college to have gotten like a transfer certificate out of it. But, you know. Once I hit that point, I was sort of faced again with this choice, like, what am, what am I going to do? You yeah. know, still, I'm only like 20, 21 at the time, um, kind of, I think, still a little too young to have to be making that kind of decision. And so I was just working, you know, shitty jobs at coffee shops, uh, working at Coffee Bean and Tea Leaf. Um, I worked at a claim jumper, uh, <laughs> Western themed <laughs> steakhouse. Uh, yeah, they got some good shoestring fries. Oh, they got, yeah, they do <laughs> all, all 4,000 calories per serving. It's uh it's a hoot, yeah. but you know, didn't, didn't really have much, uh, much going on. And that kind of explains what, what sort of drove my decision to join the Navy is that, you know, I, I, um, once I finished that, that transfer, uh, requirement, I was looking at schools and I was like thinking more seriously about like English programs and things that would have been more interesting to me. But, um, also just looking at the price tag, you know, looking at all the money that was going to be required to have to do that. And not really sure if it was worth the investment, you know, mm-hmm. so it's just a hard position to be in when you're also being told like, well, if you don't go to college, you're going to be poor the rest of your life. Yeah. So, um, but when you join the service like that, they pay for college, don't they? Yeah. And that was kind of part of the, part of the calculus. Sure. Uh, but really what got me into the Navy, um, I guess the, the truth is that uh, a good friend of mine or, um, my good friend's cousin who I knew kind of prior to, you know, seeing him again when he came back in town, um, I was, I was in this period of time where I was trying to figure out when to, or where to go to school, what to go to school for, um, living with my mom and not really, you know, uh, feeling like I'm 
moving forward in any way. Yeah. Um, so I started hanging out with this guy. He has, you know, a lot of time off. We were just chilling. I was listening to his old sea stories and, you know, all the interesting kinds of uh, stuff that's happened to him. And, you know, I was just kind of like, I need, I need some stories like that in my life. And I don't know how I'm going to get them. I don't know, you know, where I can go or what I can do to do that, you know. And, oh, by the way, you know, like it's not like – it's not like I get nothing out of that. If I were to go, you know, into the Navy, I could get college money and kind of solve this other thing that's hanging over my head at the mm-hmm. time. And so I sort of made the decision on kind of short notice, sort of told the recruiter, like, you know, I'm I'm in if you get me in as fast as you can. Um, but I, um, but I, you know, I, I need to, I need to ship and I need you to give me something that that's going to, you know, like a job that's going to work for me. So, um, so I basically like three weeks after I walked in the office, I was getting on a, getting on a bus, uh, going down to the San Diego airport and flew out to Chicago O'Hare, um, for, for boot camp. And I was 22 at the time. Do, are they less likely to take a 22 year old versus an 18 or 19 year old? Like, are they kind of like, uh, old guy here signing <laughs> up for the Navy? Yeah. You know, the, the older you get, the, the harder it is to drink the Kool-Aid, I think. Yeah. Uh, it, it is it is more it is easier to to condition you know your 18 19 year olds um into sort of being you know good good subjects good sailors but uh but at the time um i guess this is where this is where it sort of depends you know at the time the navy was in sort of a recruiting push i think this was this was in 2007 when i joined and there was a there was sort of a general surge you know troop surge going on at the time and um so they were increasing the or the um, the quotas for all branches to to bring people in. At that, in those kinds of conditions, they really relax a lot of stuff. And twenty two is you know like under normal circumstances, not too old to mm-hmm. go in. But you know like I knew guys that were like in their early thirties in boot camp, sort of coming in for the first time, which I don't think would happen today. <laughs> uh, but they were really they were uh, they were reaching. And That's weird, man. How, how old are you? I'm 35 now. 35? I'm 36. Yeah. It, I don't feel old, mm-hmm. but it's weird to think that like if I tried to sign up, mm-hmm. they'd be like, no, you're too old. I'm like, <laughs> it doesn't seem that old, but when you compare it to like an 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, like it makes sense. But you're, dude, you're just in a different mindset when you're that age. Yeah. Like yeah. I am, I'm not a smart man, but I am a thousand times smarter now than I was at 22. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, maybe that's part of, like you said, drinking the Kool-Aid. Maybe that's why they attempt to get people when they're younger mm-hmm. because you you haven't experienced as, as much life and you're not willing to just – I mean you have to essentially give your life to them, right? Yeah, or at least you know be willing to yeah. uh, have that be sort of like if necessary, you're going to do it. You know, like yeah. everybody goes in knowing there's a pretty – especially people going into the Navy, you know, if you're not like a SEAL or an operator or something like that. You know, you go in knowing there's a pretty good chance you're not really going to be in harm's way, but you never know, right? Uh, yeah. You never know what pops off and, and you know, sort of – uh, it's like what you're saying, like being smart, smarter, free thinking, having experience. It's a little bit of a liability, um, yeah. especially when it comes to sort of the training and kind of, you know, mentality conditioning. One one thing that was really interesting for me to observe about boot camp is that, you know, it was uh, it was a really effective um, uh, form of, of brainwashing. Uh, the, the methods that they use, the tactics um, to kind of sort of 
disconnect you from your previous life or, you know, sort of you in your hmm. previous sort of context. Uh, one thing that was really tough for me was that you, you don't get anything to read. You get like two things to read, the, the recruit manual and the uh, whatever your, you know, religious text of choices. Really? It, yeah. If you had a book, they would throw it away? Contraband. Yeah. Seriously? Yeah. This is just in boot camp? Boot camp only. Yeah. This isn't like, you know, on the boat. Uh, I read a ton when I was on the boat. But in boot camp, you know, boot camp in, in the Navy is eight weeks. Um, no reading. No read. I mean, like you can read. You can read the recruit manual, but you can't, you know, and so you can read for the hundredth time what the uniform standard is when you wear your, you know, your your digital camo. But like wow. you, you can't read, you know, a story, right? Uh, people, I, I guess a way people would do their best to get around this and hope not to get caught is to have people, um, you know, family members mail them pages out of books, like photocopied kind of, you know, Are one you by serious? one because if it's too, if the letter's too fat, the, uh, the recruit, um, division commander will make you open it in front of them so they can see what it is. That sounds insane. It's, and you know, that, that plays a very specific role in kind of like disconnecting you a little bit from, you know, like I, I, in some ways the culture at large, you know, yeah. sort of like the the society that that you came from, but also just really controlling the amount of information and the kind of information that you're exposed to for that, you know, sort of very concentrated period of time in which they're really breaking down your sort of your identity as yeah. an individual. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the things you're always hearing, not just in boot camp, but in the military is don't be an individual. That's sort of, you know, that's that's an insinuation that you're going your own way and doing something wrong mm-hmm. um, and sort of like rebuilding you back up into this kind of like group, you know, mentality, a, a mm-hmm. kind of larger us um, with with a very specific them on the other side of it. Yeah. I mean, I guess I get it. It just sounds crazy because I haven't been through it. But um... it is crazy. I, I'm not disputing that. <laughs> <laughs> it is. And it is always wild for me to think about, you know. Hang on one second. I just want to make sure that Mic's not coming your face. Okay, cool. Is it, is it better if I do that? Um, because I would suck if the microphone was thrown to your face the whole time. Uh, Maybe I did that on purpose. You know, <laughs> <laughs> incognito. Um, so what about? So this is two thousand seven. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess we didn't really have, we didn't have smartphones. We still had flip phones. So it's not like you could. What, what would they do now if – I mean, would they say you can't have a cell phone? Because you could read anything you want if you have a cell phone. Oh, yeah. You can't have a cell phone. You can't have a personal electronic devices. I mean, you are – there's a list of things you're allowed to have. And when you walk when you walk into boot camp, like the first night is just wild. It's, you know, <laughs> you feel like you are kind of dropped into a war zone. Yeah. You know, like having never – seen a real war zone, you know, like yeah. for uh, for suburban 22-year-old kid, it looks like one. And you're just getting shouted at. You have to stay up all night. And one of the things they make you do is put all of your clothes and all of your possessions that you walked in with um, into a box and mail it home. Huh. And, uh, you know, that includes your cell phone if you brought one. I didn't even bother. But, um, the you know, the thing is, is that like you have very small amount of space to store anything mm-hmm. um, while you're there. And, you know, it's basically for storing all the stuff that they issue you. It's really only for that. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, your rack, your your space that you store things, your personal things, um, is always being torn apart by, you know, people coming by and inspecting. The people that, like, actually work at boot camp and administer boot camp. You know, mm-hmm. there are these teams of roving inspectors that will just walk through 
people's compartments or divi- whole divisions compartments and just open up racks and throw things around and if they find contraband you know it's it's uh it's sort of a, a hit against that division um lots of push-ups lots of punishment yeah push-ups uh <laughs> mountain climbers uh just all kinds of different sort of weird uh workout torture <laughs> that they make you do did, did anybody get a get a sock full of uh Bar soap in the middle of the night, <laughs> pillowcase full of bar soap. Yeah, the uh, what they call a blanket party. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, never really, never really um, large organized. <laughs> that scene is is kind of funny because everybody is like doing it all at once. But yeah. there would be little quarrels in the corner. You know, after the mm-hmm. after the the um, the RDCs would go home for the night, or there was always somebody, but they weren't always like right there observing, and mm-hmm. people would jump out of the racks and kind of run around and you know be kids getting fights, but. Never, never anything, you know, like a, like a, like a agreed upon retaliation <laughs> like that though. Yeah. You, you got to go back when you get a chance and listen to an episode I did with my friend, Jesse Byron, it, it, like halfway through the, the episode, he talks about when he went to boot camp and, uh, he tells a story about this guy who tried to kill himself mm-hmm. and Jesse had only been there for like a few days or something. And he was on the night watch when this dude tried to kill himself and he found him. And the guy was bleeding out hmm. and he had to go find somebody to help him save the guy. He ended up saving his life, but um, it's given me flashbacks of that. Uh, so when you got there and you you begin to uh, put yourself in that in that situation and you start to learn all these things, did you did you just say, oh, fuck, man, what did I do? I, I want <laughs> out of here. Was there, there any of that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think everybody has that thought, you know, at some point you you certainly have, I think. So, so Navy boot camp is currently in uh, uh, Great Lakes, Illinois. Um, You fly in Chicago O'Hare and then they take you on a bus from O'Hare to, um, to, to Great Lakes. And, you know, it's sort of uh, the, the like almost dreamlike sequence that I had kind of moving from, from that bus ride into, you know, actually getting screamed at by everybody sort of as soon as you walk in the door is I heard, um, it was like a, like a Muzak, like elevator music cover of September by Earth, Wind and Fire on the bus. Oh no. So it ruined that for you. <laughs> I was just thinking, I was like, this is hilarious. And then, you know, like five <laughs> seconds later, someone like this close to me screaming in my face and, um, you know, like, yeah, it, it, you're immediately like, oh gosh, what have I done? You know, yeah. like, like what, a how long is this going to last? That's usually like, you know, what, what's also going through your head. But, um, yeah, no, it, it, it for on and off seems like a very bad idea <laughs> after you've, you've sort of gotten your way in and, you know, you're there for the first week, the second week, you know, you're just, you're just sort of miserable, mm-hmm. um, uh, getting by, there are small wins that you kind of celebrate, but like eating lunch is a nightmare, you know, like just the way they make you do it. They kind of, they follow you in, like you have to wait, um, you know, outside. You're always waiting uh, in lines for things. And so they'll march you in a row and then you have to stand, you know, like heel to toe outside of any place that you're going to go while they're waiting, you know, getting ready for your division. Um, and so you're just kind of crammed with people like reading the stupid recruit manual. Um, and, uh, and then they sort of like, all right, go and sort of rush you in. You go, you get your food, you have 12 minutes to eat it. Uh, there's no salt. Like the, <laughs> you, you get some weird salt substitute. I don't know. They have some, some sodium thing, but like, huh. it, you know, like just, just everything sucks. Um, 
And it's intentional, right? It's intentional. But then things start to get better um, as you go on. You get a little more bits of freedom. You get to go to the next, you know, sort of at some point uh, further on in and like buy something for yourself for the first time. I get to buy my own razor, you know, mm. like they issued me this, this shitty disposable razor. Oh, now I get to buy a Mach 3 with, you know, the very small amount of money I've been earning while while sitting here in this, uh, this boot camp situation. Do they give you like your own bank account, like your own... Yeah. Navy bank account, yeah, yeah, they and they us. populate it with money periodically. Yeah, I think it was either like you could either just open a bank account with like Navy Federal Credit Union, or you, you know, like you come in with your with a bank account and like fill out what is the equivalent of like a, a direct deposit form, and huh. and so yeah, they're just direct depositing money that you have no access to. How, how much did they pay you when you were in boot camp? It's like nine cents a day. <laughs> Something like that. It, it, it felt very small. I think uh, it's the equivalent of uh, an E1 or like the lowest enlisted ranks um, pay for, you know, for a couple of months, which is, I want to say like at the time was like $600 a month or something. It's like minimum wage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if that. Yeah. Um, and and so, you know, it's not like you had a lot of money or anything like that, but yeah. But just, again, sort of being in this kind of topsy-turvy world where, like, you're used to just being like, I want a soda. I will walk into the store whenever I feel like it. You know, like, yeah. and like, like uh, you can't even have caffeine on me. Like, <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's, uh, it's just feels those small things that they give you as you kind of move your way through feel so liberating. So when you look at it now with 10 years of hindsight, uh, can you see why they did it or why they still do it or why all those little things made you feel more like a group as opposed to an individual? Like with that goal in mind, do you see how it was beneficial? Well, it's, it's beneficial for, you know, it's beneficial if you're building a force that you need to go out and do stuff without questioning, you know, it's beneficial because, you know, if you're, if you're kind of too free thinking, if you're, you know, too, too much of an individual in any kind of given moment when, when an order comes through, um, that you're very, you're much less likely to like ask those questions. And in a lot of ways, you know, like bootcamp has a, has a built-in fail rate, you know, like, you know, that not everybody, like there's like 80 people to a division, you know, that, you know, like some percentage of that isn't going to, isn't going to make it. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's like no consequences for dropping out of boot camp. It's just sort of, you know, you don't get like a bad discharge or anything. They just kind of call it a failure to adjust and, Hmm. you know, like, like treat it like, like it never happened. What was it ever so tough for you that you almost quit? No, I, I don't think I was ever in the mindset that I was going to quit, at least at the, the point of boot camp. Yeah. Um, though, I, you know, later on, things were a little different and I just got over it. Yeah. <laughs> we can get to that. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, in boot camp, I think I was I was uh, pretty committed to just, you know, challenging myself and making it through. It was uh-huh. something I had never done before. It was unlike anything that yeah. I'd, I'd ever done before. And, you know, it didn't it didn't. Uh, seem worth it to have come all that way to, to not, to not do it. And also like the brainwashing is effective. I could feel it working on me or I, I, you know, like when I was having moments of clarity, kind of looking back, like I see how I was kind of brought into this, you know, like how that process worked on me and how, you know, like how bought in I, I do feel when I'm kind of, you know, like not thinking too hard about it. Yeah. And, um, but, but it's just, it's also super weird. You know, it's a, it's a weird thing to, to kind of, have to do and it's not a lot it's not something a lot of people ever you know will do um uh, to kind of have your freedom sort of like 
circumscribed like that. I always feel like, or I, I, when I look back on sort of that first night at boot camp, it, it, I think it must feel a little bit like, um, kind of like, I don't know, like a kidnapping or something like that, where you you now have no control over what happens to you. Yeah. There is no, you can't, anything you say, you're just going to get shouted at and told to do something else. Like mm-hmm. there's zero control and, and, you know, like your, what whatever you're, do, whatever you do, however you're going to sort of be for the next eight weeks is like totally up to them. And so were there any hardcore sadistic total turd ball drill sergeant type people like were there's some people that like that was their goal in life to just like break you you know like <laughs> um we're, or we're, we're most of them pretty cool and they're just like this is my job you know it's uh it's interesting i i, I see things differently now um than back then because a, a good friend of mine did go to boot camp as a as an instructor and so i got to hear his story and sort of like what um, what the, what, what their motivations are, what's going on through their head, you yeah. know, like, cause it does feel very much when you're, you know, when you're the recruit, just like, oh, these people just really love being mean to people. They mm-hmm. really like to just yell and be angry and, you know, but, but they're also, they're taught to do that. Yeah. Um, but you know, from the, from the recruits perspective, the, the new recruits perspective, it didn't feel like people were being like malicious for the sake of being malicious. You know, they, they always kind of had at least some sort of, I'm doing this for your own good sort of uh, yeah. presentation, mm-hmm. whether or not that was just a front for their actual sadism. I'm, I'm not sure like that could definitely have been the case, but yeah. um, they hit it well. Yeah. Well, so, okay. So you did boot camp for eight weeks and then what happens after that? You get sent somewhere else? Yeah. You go to school. Um so there's a there's a, a system of schools in the Navy, and you go to, at the minimum, A school. And then after that, if you have, like, a special job, you go to C school, sort of, you know, like your, like your um, undergraduate and your graduate level stuff, but it wasn't, wasn't as long as, like, a college degree or anything. Yeah. Um, so I went to Virginia Beach in November of 2018, or t- t- 2007, and um, uh, was was at um, Damneck Navy Base in Virginia Beach for almost two years, um, which wasn't typical, but I was uh, I was kind of on on a couple of different sort of hold statuses. And so you you know you go there and it's it's like a very light continuation of boot camp in that you know when you're brand new, they put you into a very specific barracks building with other new people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you sort of you're forced to do bullshit watches that don't mean anything, just like in boot camp. You know, you're just they <laughs> strap a fake gun on you and make you walk around in circles just so you know what it's like to do that yeah, and like yeah. write down little things on a on a sheet of paper that you know mean nothing, but, yeah. but you have to do it perfectly, huh. or or you get in trouble. And so so they they re- reproduce all that, but you're allowed to have more stuff. Um, but you know, like you're forced to wear your uniform almost all the time. You, um, you have a lot of like, you know, musters, like, like assembly meetings that you have to go to sort of on a very rigorous schedule. The uh-huh. amount of time that you can spend out, the number of times that you can leave the base in a week, those are all very, you know, controlled. Hmm. And then once you get through, you know, a certain amount of time, um, sort of playing that game, a lot of that starts to, to, you go through different phases. I'm forgetting a lot of the actual lingo that we would have used back then, but like you, you go through different phases of, of liberty, as they say, your, mm-hmm. your ability to like, you know, wear civilian clothes, go off base, drink beer, that kind of stuff. That's a, that's a uh, reward being able to drink beer. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh or just, you know, like being allowed to, to go to places. Um, well, yeah. I mean, you know, 
you can cross you know, so every time that you enter this barracks building you know you're kind of going by one of us standing a bullshit watch mm-hmm. and um you know if somebody's like obviously drunk and they're they know that this person's like on a lower liberty phase like they can sort of detain them call over someone with actual authority and be like hey this guy's drunk and mm-hmm. you know he's only on phase one or something mm-hmm. so you know i'm not remembering exactly what those policies were but you could get in trouble for you know, for drinking before hitting a certain phase of liberty. Gotcha. Um, and yeah, that that was sort of a reward. It's not so much a reward, like now you can drink beer. It's just sort of like we're lifting stuff off of you. It was, yeah. was sort of more generally the uh, the the uh, reward in, this, in that situation. Mm-hmm. So the two years in Virginia Beach were preparing you for possible combat? No, no, I was uh, I was a... A pogue, as they say. I guess that's not really a Navy term. More yeah, what is that? I've never heard that. Person other than grunt. Um, th- that was a Marine term that uh, I think I picked up from the TV show um, Generation Kill. Okay. I don't know if you ever watched that. Uh-huh. Great great show. Um, I, I did intelligence. So my, my job ultimately turned out being um, um, satellite imagery interpreter. And um, one of the things that we would do very often is just sort of, um, well, the the military owns a lot of satellites that are, sure. you know, sort of out there circling and taking pictures and, you know, sort of at a, on a very strict timetable, um, people are taking that imagery that the satellites take and then transmit back down, looking at, you know, like different military bases in other countries and sort of like reading the equipment, um, sort of making note of what is where, you know, like here's a Navy base somewhere in Iran and we know that there's usually like six boats of this type sitting on this pier. Yesterday there were six. Oh, today's there's five. Look around the rest of the, around the rest of the docks. Oh, we don't see them on any repair piers. We can assume maybe that thing got out and, or, you know, not got out, but like went underway. And if we're in the area, we might expect to see them there. Sure. So, you know, there's basically, you know, a group of people doing this, in very, and I'm not really, I'm not leaking classified information here, so uh, so don't worry about that. I, I, I don't think. Um, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not. Uh, and so, you know, like there's a basically for every ship that's deployed, there's kind of a team of people doing this um, yeah. for different parts of the world and just kind of uploading it all into a central database and sort of briefing. So your specific job was to look at those images that the satellites had taken mm-hmm. and determine whether or not there was going to be a threat or something? Yeah, just if there was a change at all. You yeah, know, we would note changes. They didn't necessarily equate to threats, but like any change could, you know, be a potential thing to keep an eye out for. But it was strictly naval uh, ships and other things. It didn't have anything to do with land. So we would do stuff on land in school. Like so in school, uh, backing up a little bit, the the A school portion that I mentioned before kind of being your your undergraduate and then the C school portion being your sort of specialized training. Um, C school is where, you know, I learned to do like the imagery specific stuff. And there and there was another school called operational intelligence and that's where they learned how to do, you know, kind of like 
briefing and threat tracking. And there was another one you know, without going into too much detail. And there was another one that was uh, sort of ground specific for people okay. that were like attached to Navy SEAL teams and stuff. And so in school, we would do a lot of, you know, like ground recognition practice where we'd have to look at tanks, you know, like I was at a T-80 or a T-70 or a T-60 or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, we'd look at planes sitting on tarmac, you know. But for the most part, when we were actually like underway, like when I was operational, it was just boats. Mm-hmm. But do you, do do you have any idea when something? I'm just thinking of when they killed Osama bin Laden. Mm-hmm. Did you have any idea that would happen? I mean, probably not, right? That was probably super top secret. You didn't know it happened until it happened. Did were you like? Is that something that you could have been involved with in any way, like determining different factors or different uh, pieces of intelligence that would? allow something like that to happen? Am I? Yeah. Yes. So, you know, like part of, part of the answer to that is that, you know, like there are enlisted jobs and there are officer jobs in intelligence and, you know, enlisted kind of being the lower, the lower like level. Again, thinking about this in sort of a class analysis, you know, like there's a whole bunch of enlisted people that are, you know, kind of like your lower wage workers that do more technical, um, technical down to menial work. Okay. And then the officers are really like, they're the thinkers, right? And okay. so Intel officers would would have been more involved in that sort of thing. But, you know, guys doing a job like I used to do would have been involved in, you know, sort of, yeah, watching maybe drone footage as it was happening or, or something like that. Uh-huh. But all that comes down to wherever you wind up being stationed. And uh, if you're on a ship like I was, um, then it's it's unlikely that that you would have been involved. So wh- why why be on a ship though? If you're just looking at images and and passing along uh, intel to, to superiors, why why be on a ship? Why is that necessary? You know that's a good question. Um, I'm not entirely sure why they would distribute that to uh, ships in the area. I think it's 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 changing now. They might have they might have um, seen that ha- had that same question and, and started moving towards sort of these um, these like centers, these intelligence centers that mm-hmm. kind of do the work um, and don't necessarily need to be in theater. But I think the idea is that. You know, like when when my ship was deployed to like the Gulf of Aden, for example, we would get a lot we would get a lot of assignments of um, shoots they're doing on the coast of Somalia, and so you know, like we were right next to the coast of Somalia, so we would have been the first people to see any change. Gotcha. And you know, like maybe that's something that you know, like in addition to sending off the email to Big Navy, we would then want to like you know run over to the captain and be like, oh hey, you know, like here's some stuff mm-hmm. that you should be aware of. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really the the best explanation I can think of as to why they would task ships specifically with it. But it is definitely something I think that they're moving towards sort of a, a combined well, yeah. shore facility. Yeah, it seems like as, as uh, technology becomes more advanced too, it seems like you wouldn't really need humans to do that. You, it seems like you could get some sort of like super intelligent um, network of computers to like evaluate all that kind of stuff. Yeah, you would think. I mean, I guess... What, what, I, what, what, so what you did... What made that human specific? Like, why why could a, uh, some sort of AI not do it? You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, one of the things that's um, you know kind of interesting about about mapping and about like imagery analysis in general, um, something that I learned too as I spend more time like in the in the industry, you know, like more more recently in my job, is that there's a lot of stuff that humans do that the computer really doesn't do very well. And when it comes to imagery analysis, one of the things that computers are very bad at still is um, pattern recognition. Uh, They're good at, you know, like 
manipulating the image, at doing different kinds of filtering to kind of like make things stand out. They're good at, you know, like counting uh, the number of pixels that have a certain, you know, like uh, value or higher, you know, like that kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. as far as like, look, like that's a boat, you know, like that's a plane. Uh, computers still struggle really hard with that. And hmm. I think things, you know, that that's going to keep changing. But where the technology stands at the moment and especially, you know, I guess this was, would have been 10 years ago or more, um, computers just aren't aren't capable of that at, at you know at, at the at, at what we um, what we currently have technologically sure okay and so were, were you on a were you on a boat that was above water or were you on a submarine I was on a boat uh, or an above water boat I guess a what? ship uh, submarines are often called <laughs> you, boats. you can correct me <laughs> for my my the way I'm explaining things because yeah. I no. know what I'm talking about yeah no I was on a surface ship um, okay. it was it's called the USS Macon Island there's okay. there's nothing uh, wrong with saying where I was stationed I'm sure that's all public record anyway mm-hmm. but um yeah I was stationed on the Macon Island it's a it was a large um, uh, basically marine transporter it was an amphibious assault ship that if you were to look at it, it would look a lot like a, a like a small aircraft carrier okay. and um we would basically cruise around when we were deployed, just cruise around and off the shore of somewhere where maybe we would want to put Marines or at least threaten to put Marines um, with about 2,000 of them and a bunch of supporting aircraft and, and um, uh, uh, armored fighting vehicles that are amphibious too. So mm-hmm. so um, meaning what? Meaning they can they can drive in a certain amount of water or they can float as well? Yeah, they can float. Um, and go on land? Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty wild to watch. Um, so it's well, basically a tank that floats. Yes, it's like a tank boat uh, or boat tank, whichever. And <laughs> they look they look super sketchy because uh, they get like when you when you watch them, they they go out onto the shore in this in this line, and the tops of them are barely visible. You can just kind of see one hatch, you know, like that much of a hatch sticking out of the water, and like one person sort of sticking up out of it, looking around, That's navigating, crazy. and. Um, yeah, it looks super sketchy. Actually, um, something happened, I think it was late last year, where on on my old boat on the Macon Island, they were doing some training exercises where they were landing those exact tank boats, and um, a couple went down, and they lost all the Marines in them. Hmm. Um, so it's it's very dangerous to do, and it's, you know, very technically, you know, like, difficult, but... Um, well, how do they deploy them? Can they just, like, drive off the deck of the ship? So the the back of the boat sinks. Um, believe it or not, it's uh, there's a big gate. They call it the the there's a, a floodable room, more or less, a big compartment in the back of the boat Whoa. that has um, you know sort of ballast tanks all around it. They can take on water, and the whole thing can just sink down into the water and fill up. You know, basically make a little a little like. <laughs> Uh, almost a beach within within the boat huh. and then these things just sort of drive down into it because there's a ramp that leads into that until they you know get deep enough and just start to float on their own and then shoot right out the back hmm. um it's pretty wild to watch that the the well deck operations because you know these things are huge you know like the boat is 860 feet long or something like that you know like several football fields mm-hmm. and um and yet you know like it can just sink and and raise uh not not quickly, but on command. Yeah, yeah, that's insane. The the technology that the the uh, the government has 
has got to be crazy. The the stuff that like regular civilians don't know anything about. I've never heard of that before. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that's not that crazy, but like, oh, we're talking World War II technology, really, <laughs> really, yeah. really, <laughs> yeah. Huh. Um, but it's not, you know, it's it's sort of like I think in most people's imaginations, you've got, you know, like your aircraft carrier and then a destroyer, and there's really not much in between. You yeah. know, like what else would the Navy do? Um, and you know, at, at this point, given the way that you know wars are being fought in general, um, you know, sort of counter to the old World War II great powers sorts of struggles, um, the uh, you know, these types of boats are becoming more and more used because they're basically little little landing platforms where you can kind of pick special ops up off of them and drop them into mm-hmm. Habio in Somalia or something like that very quickly. Well, I mean, you don't even really need boots on the ground as much anymore, right? Can't you just do everything with drones? Isn't that what they do most of the bombing with? That's what they've been doing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. Um, yeah, it, I mean... You it's know. not like dudes with guns landing anymore. It's just like, we're going to fly this unmanned aircraft over your city and bomb the shit out of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, like basically what what the Navy is doing, you know, by and large these days is just deterrence. You know, it's sort of like the the, what what was the the Roosevelt line, you know, like uh, talk softly and carry a big stick. Yeah. Just um, cruising around showing everybody that we've got this. I mean, really with eyes on China, like, hey, you guys don't want to fight this, do you? uh, just driving kind of around flexing our muscles. Fle- yeah, flexing all over the South China <laughs> Sea and, um, you know, trying to trying to say to kind of uh, the, the great power, great powers, which really, I mean, means Iran, Russia, China, um, you know, like if you were to try anything, this is what you're looking at. Um, and so, like, on the one hand, it's it's kind of an interesting, it's kind of an interesting job because you, you know, like at least when I was doing intelligence, we would you know, have to learn about like the geopolitics of these different countries, how their politics kind of interact with each other and with ours, how, you know, like a political decision over here could, you know, like mean kind of uh, conflict over there. Um, but at the same time, it's also a little demoralizing. So you're like, we're not doing anything, you guys. Like our job is pretty pointless right now because hmm. uh, we also understood that all anybody is fighting these these war front, like the only axes that these wars um, are being fought on in the modern era is, you know, drones and special ops. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you're just kind of out there not being home for seven months, missing your family, yeah. missing, you know, like just being able to do anything on your own yeah. and, uh, you know, being having to sleep at work where your boss can just come wake you up whenever they want. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's imagine, not cool, man. Imagine that. Yeah. Imagine having yeah. to go to sleep at work and wake up there and go right back <laughs> up to the office and do it again. I'm sleeping, man. <laughs> Um, so yeah, it, it always felt a little strange being out there, um, you know, sort of doing that kind of work. Cause you were like, oh, am I doing anything? Is yeah. this, is this, you know, is there any point to this? Mm-hmm. Um, I guess, you know, something that would go through my mind doing, doing my like imagery work. I mentioned that we would have to look at like the coast of Somalia, right? Like Somalia is barely a state. Uh, it's, you know, certainly not a unified state and, it doesn't have a, a navy, you know, like as such. Uh, what it's got is a bunch of very small fishing boats turned upside down on the on the beach mm-hmm. um, that you know people will drag out and either use to fish, or you know that like you know one armed group will drag out and then go hijack an oil tanker with. Yeah. And so we're sitting there on the computer, you know, like counting the number of boats 
you know, like looking at the last image, counting that number of boats, looking at the present image and counting that number of boats and like, did these ones move from here to there? You can't even tell they're not different. You know, yeah. like the the whole the whole like practice of doing that, you know, like demands that you have real ships with like hull numbers, things you can identify and recognize. And we're just like, you know, so often you just be like, I don't know, it's like 55. Just put that on the report. You know, like one got turned upside down. Like, yeah, <laughs> who knows? You know, yeah. like you can't say like pure A, pure B. There's no pure. It's just yeah. a big stretch of sand and like fishing nets everywhere. Huh. Yeah. I mean, that that almost is to their benefit, right? That that it's unorganized and uh, indiscernible. Like, because then you've just got a number of items on the beach. Yeah. And it makes it difficult for you, for people like you. Yeah. Well, I mean, it just kind of it, – it more just shows you the the sort of how, how this all has moved so dramatically away from, you know, the way things used to be, you know, used to be carried out. You know, I should say, like, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to sound um, – you know, like, oh, how, how are we going to do war better? You know, like they're, they're stopping us from doing war better. I, you know, I'm a, I'm kind of, I'm an anti-war veteran. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't, I don't, uh, want to, want to do war any better. And it's not like I was just like, gosh, these guys are frustrating us and our, you know, uh, ability to, to know everything about their tactics. Yeah. Um, uh, but really it just sort of like, it was more of a kind of a broader realization, like, we kind of have no idea how to fight this fight that we're in right now. You know, yeah. like the this sort of global war on terror um, or, or whatever whatever name um, you want to give it. it. It just, it feels very counterproductive, wasteful, you know, almost like, uh, like, is this something that, you know, like the U.S. military is even, you know, like not just equipped to handle, but should be handling, you yeah. know, or, you know, like we don't want... Uh, merchant ships to be, you know, taken over by um, pirates and, you know, like held ransom. Those people are in real danger and, and often die. But um, on the other hand, you know, like there's got to be a better model for this. Yeah. Um, so. So throughout this whole time that you are um, stationed on this boat and over there in, in the middle, middle East area, you realize what you're doing, which is your job, which is performing a task for United States government. Mm -hmm. um, did, I mean, what did you think about where it was going? Did you, at that point in time, were you like, oh, this is, this is, this is what I'm doing with my life? Uh, did you, did you ever try to just get out of it? Like what, what was your mindset throughout that whole time? You seem like a very intelligent individual who would probably be constantly questioning what was going on regardless of the brainwashing, you know, like what, what was your, your mindset the whole time? Yeah. The, the brainwashing wasn't durable, at least not on me. Um, it's, it's something that you can kind of notice after a little bit of time. You're like, Oh, wait a minute. I don't actually think any of that. But, um, yeah, I very quickly became pretty disenchanted and, you know, like I had started with the idea maybe I could do this as a career you know it's it's something that people do for their whole lives and it's it's actually a pretty well-paying job yeah. um, at the moment and um, or relative to what else is available in the economy and um, but you know yeah just sort of feeling feeling just 
disrespected so often, feeling like, I mean, disrespected within the service, you know, like, like when you're an enlisted person, you do have to put up with just a lot of people's shit and there's nothing that you can say about it and saying anything back is just going to make things way worse. And so you just kind of sit there and get kicked and like, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir. And you know, like that sucks. Um, if you've, (laughs) if you've got any self-respect and aren't like fully bought into the idea that, you know, like this is, you know, like some higher purpose stuff. And mm-hmm. like I said, you know, like we were all, not not all of us, but many of us would sort of look at what we we're doing and be like, what what even is the purpose here? You know, yeah. it just feels like we're, you know, like like keeping Northrop Grumman in some contracts or something like that. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I pretty quickly got off of, uh, off of ever, you know, spending more than a single enlistment in the Navy. And so I actually did... Um, I did work to get out earlier than my contract said. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that they do, um, one thing that they do for jobs that require things like security clearances or extra training is they make you tack on extra time to your enlistment. So a four-year enlistment is kind of the standard; it's the baseline. But you know, like if you're an air traffic controller, for example, you have to get some extra training for that, and they ask you to have a five-year enlistment. And for my job, they asked me to have a six-year enlistment. So I was signed up for six years wow. and, um, and I had to work pretty hard and <laughs> make some friends and contacts outside of my own command, um, just through people I knew in San Diego. Cause I was stationed in San Diego. My boat was sort of, you know, like full-time docked in San Diego, but then we'd deploy out to, uh, the Middle East on what they call a Westpac deployment. Would you go through Panama? Uh, no, actually, um, well, I'll digress for a minute. Um, when I, uh, I, I'm a, I'm what they call a plank owner and a plank owner is somebody who gets stationed on a boat while it's still being built when it's not quite finished yet. And, you know, you're part of sort of the first crew of the boat. Um, the boat was being built on the Northrop Grumman shipyards in Pascagoula, Mississippi. So I shipped from Virginia to Pascagoula, mm. um, which that was a culture shock. Uh, <laughs> uh, spending the the uh, eight months in Pascagoula that I did, that was pretty pretty wild. But um, but one of the things that we we had to do was take the boat from Mississippi to San Diego, sort of like for its kind of final home port, hmm. you know, like uh, transfer. Sure, um, and. I believe now we could have just gone straight through the Panama Canal. It would have taken us like five days. But the canal was being widened at the time. This was in 2009 mm-hmm. um, and was not yet big enough to fit a boat our size. Damn. And so we did go all the way around um, the the south end. Well, not not the south end of South America. There's, there's Drake's Passage, which is kind of like the tip of Patagonia, and kind of the coast of Antarctica, that that space in between. Okay. Um, but then there's the Strait of Magellan, yep. which is the the little waterway between continental mm-hmm. South America and the island of Patagonia. So we went through the Strait of Magellan, and like you know, that was kind of an all time experience, I think. Yeah. Did you get off the the boat and like walk around and check stuff out? No, we we did stop at a city uh, just before we hit the strait called Punta Arenas, which is, I believe, on on the Chilean side because okay. um, the border with Argentina is right there. And um, some officers got to get off and like go to like, there's a statue of Magellan. What it, the shit? Only the officers got to get off? Uh, we were all pissed about it. We were like, this is supposed Dude. to be like a sailing tradition, you know, like sailors go and like, I don't know, kiss the feet or, or you know, tickle the armpit of Ferdinand <laughs> or something like that uh, on their way through the passage. It's, uh, you know, we all felt a little gypped, but. 
yeah, that sucks. But um, we we did bring on a whole bunch of Chilean officers, and and I think they were just officers actually, and sort of transited you know transited with them, or they transited with us through um, through the uh, Strait of Magellan, and yeah, just like going through the Strait was amazing. You know, like you got Patagonia on the south side, you see these glaciers cascading down the side, you, wow. penguins everywhere. I no lie saw an orca eat a seal just like like everybody's looking like oh there's a seal moving like you see like kind of the back of the orca behind it you're like oh what's going on here and then boom uh real animal planet shit and uh it was yeah it was a blast the captain was you know getting your retirement too and he was just kind of like acting acting as tour guide on the one mc like oh there's a glacier on the left everybody take a look (laughs) so he was having a good time we were all we're all digging it um but uh, but yeah, so so I've never been through the Panama Canal. I've uh, but I have gone down around South America, hmm. um, and that trip in particular was actually like probably the best trip that I took. Um, so h- how many days does that add on if you just were sailing the whole time? Is that like an extra seven days? No, I believe that took us a full month and a half or something. Like it was uh, it was a good amount of time. It wasn't very fast and. You know, I don't know, like, there's a lot of continent, a lot of hemisphere to cover. Yeah, man. Because the, the equator doesn't even really, you know, like, start until partway down Brazil. And then you have to go almost down to Antarctica to, to hit that to hit that passage. So wow. there's quite a lot of ground to cover. And, and yeah, I think we left in August and showed up in September. So, you know, between one and two months um, was about how long it took. But we weren't operational. We were we were really not doing much at all, yeah. <laughs> playing a lot of Xbox or practicing guitar or something like that mm-hmm. in the uh, in the in the offices and reading well, a lot of books. What's uh, what's that like being on the boat for that long? Do you um, do do you get some, like some sort of weird uh, desire to be on land? Like, is does it just like gnaw at you being on the water for that long? Or do you just not even notice? Well, you do kind of get into a a sort of feeling of not even noticing it. Um, You know, it's it's almost, I don't know if you've read the book um, uh, Catch-22 by Joseph Heller. Um, it's been a, it's been a while, but yeah. I'd but you know, it. like kind of the zany harebrained shit that those guys are all kind of like you know doing, almost like pulling pranks on each other. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's just all in this sort of absurdist light. You kind of start to see your life in that same sort of way. Yeah, it's just you know the things you do to 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 keep your mind off of the fact that like yeah you do want to just be on land and you know like have a normal life for a while again. Yeah, um, is is to just you know, go into total weird human mode and like pull pranks and, uh, just, I don't know. I I was, I was keeping a journal, um, not, not during the, this, um, sail around of South America that I was describing, but when I was, um, going, um, when I was on my last Westpac deployment, which is basically out to, um, the Persian Gulf and back. Uh, and you know, like there was one, there was one moment in there where, uh, I was, talking about this uh this junior officer who came in all excited you know and he's just like game on you know and we're all like what like three junior sailors knew exactly what he was talking about now you could tell they're all getting all pumped and and i'm like hold on hold on a second guys because in my mind like like you could always be extended and your seven month deployment turns into 10 and you just like you're always scared of that happening so i was just like i'm like concerned that these guys are like jazz that we're about to like stay out longer and you know like i don't know do God's work or something like that. And so, you know, I, I like cornered somebody and I was like, Hey, come on, you got to tell me 
what is going on here. And, um, you know, finally he breaks and he's like, okay, okay. So uh, the 1MC song, every morning they play a song on, you know, the loudspeaker to kind of wake everybody up um, when you're on deployment. And, you know, like it was a Friday and this guy had just gotten such a kick out of the fact that he'd convinced them to play the song Friday by Re- by Rebecca Black. And I was just, I wrote in my journal, they're like, I'm f- fucking, I work with 13 year old girls. Like, this is awful. <laughs> But, but you know, like that was the kind of shit that they got into to kind of yeah. disassociate that we're all just disassociating ourselves in these really strange ways. Yeah. You know, it's uh, just trying to cope with it. Yeah. For sure. I mean, I, all I did was just read a lot, um, escaped into, into that fantasy world. Oh, and I think I beat Guitar Hero like four times or something like that. But, um, but yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it's strange to just kind of be on this, this long haul isolation, um, sort of, sort of, uh, uh, periods of your life where you're, you know, like you are, you're, you're not isolated. You're around lots of people that you know really well, but also mm-hmm. like your real life is totally like on hold somewhere else. Yeah. The worst part to me just seems that you're not in control of anything. Mm-hmm. Like you can't just freak out and drive three States away or something. You know what I mean? You mm-hmm. can't just, Oh, I'm going to go see Mount Rushmore and just go fucking do it. Like you are stuck wherever they tell you are. To be stuck. Like, I have a friend who um, is still involved with the army, and he just got sent somewhere for six months. He's got a wife and kids. Uh, and I'm just like, what, what do you, what do you think about that, man? Like, you just six months of your life, you're, you're not, gonna, your kids are gonna grow up, man. You got three young kids, you're gonna miss out on six months of their life. I'm like, how do you feel about that? And he's just like, I have to do it. And that just seems so so oppressive to me and I get that's what he signed up for but oh my god that's awful you just like you don't know what's gonna happen you just have to do whatever they tell you to yeah and you know it's like I say this you know like not not meaning to like pump myself or any other person that's you know like spent time in the service up in any you know way but like it's a kind of mental fortitude that you just kind of have to learn uh to to sort of Hang on to another thing that I noticed in this journal. I was reading this journal uh, the other night, um, sort of in preparation for this, uh, just to remind myself of, you know, weird observations that I was making. But, mm-hmm. um, uh, oh, and there it went. Lost it. <laughs> I made the aside. That's um, right. But, but yeah. Oh no, it was it was that um, you know sort of um, something that I had said was somebody told me a percentage of like completion that we were at, like having done 47 days, we were like 20% or 19% done or something like that. And, you know, I was like so mad at that person for having told me that because I was just trying my hardest to stay ignorant of the passage of time. Yeah. And actually that's one thing that I think has kind of, we're all doing a little bit, not, not to bring up the pandemic. I, you know, I, uh, it's so on everybody's mind. I don't want to like assault anybody in their, in their, uh, you know, listening experience with <laughs> musings on it. But like, it's kind of a mentality that I think we're all feeling a little bit, a kind of like long-term isolation, uh, a deployment kind of mindset in, in the present where, you know, like I find it so much easier right now to just be ignorant to the passage of time. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, it would be easier if I worked seven days like I did when we were deployed because they all run together. You have no idea if a week just started or ended or if you're in the middle of it. And that's fine because like, you know, one day you look up three, five, five, ten weeks later, you're like, oh my gosh, we're that much further? That's cool. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had no idea. And then, you know, you go back down into, you put your head back in the sand and pretend like, like, uh, like time isn't passing or, or yeah, trying it's, to stay ignorant to it. it. It's a form of prison for sure. 
And uh, yeah, I don't want to get into COVID because I'm sick of fucking talking about it. But um, yeah, I, I, I feel the same way about that, man. It's like, it just won't end. It just goes on and on and on. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a form of prison um, that we can't escape. And, and it seems like the more you talk about it and the more you dwell on it, the worse it is. And so, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, you got to disassociate, you know, it's, oh, it's, it's uh, just, it's a, uh, it, it is just so much easier to, to, you know, I don't know, see it as something completely like, I don't know, almost like it's a, like it's a movie or, or something like that. Like it's a, like it's a yeah. story you heard and you're but, remembering, you're in a long digression in your own mind, remembering something that happened. <laughs> yeah. It, it's depressing though. Cause it's happening in real time and it's like, I have become more and more aware of time as as an element. Like when you really think about it, like you only get a certain amount uh, and you get to choose, you know, what you do with it, whether you learn some skills, watch some movies, hang out with your kids, hang out with a girlfriend or your wife or go see your grandparents. Like you, you have a thousand options every day of what you're going to do with that time. And when we're in a situation like this, we're just like waiting for something to be over. And so many days I'll just be like getting ready to get in bed. And I'm like, fuck another day. (laughs) Like, what did I do today? What did I do? You know, it's just another, and I'm just getting older. Mm -hmm. And when you're younger, man, you don't really think about it. You're just, you're just in it. And, you know, being 36 now, it's like, it's so cliche to say, but the time really goes by faster the older you get. Mm-hmm. You, I mean, if you don't do things differently on a daily basis or on a weekly basis or whatever, to, to like if you get up in the morning and you eat Lucky Charms and then you brush your teeth 46 times and then you drive the exact same way to work, like you're creating rhythms and patterns, which may help you cope with life a little bit better, but you're also just throwing weeks and weeks away because everything's the same. Mm-hmm. And I hate that. Mm-hmm. I hate feeling that there's no nothing special about today. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. The thing that I've been, I, I was kind of in my own head about this last night, you know, I was just like, I know, like, doesn't feel like there's a whole lot to look forward to in the future, or that there is like a future to look forward to necessarily. And I think that's kind of hard. Um, just, just trying to, to, I don't know, challenge that thought in the first place and be like, no, 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 no something's going to change. You know, like you're just in the shit right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, you know, like, I, I mean, prior to the pandemic, like things weren't great either. You know, <laughs> uh, it, it, it's been, it hasn't been like, it's not like things were like. Boop, like yeah. that it, it's uh you know it's not, it's not like things took a took a hard turn all of a sudden it's just kind of a an intensification of the trajectory that was already sort of underway and um you know that's tough <laughs> yeah well a lot of it too is like i try to i try to compare now to other time periods and it's like maybe maybe now it just seems so much worse because because we don't have that many things that are really that challenging. You know what I mean? Like if you compare the Great Depression or uh, the Industrial Revolution, like you can compare it to a thousand different things. People only had so many things they could do each day Mm -hmm. and so many goals to achieve. Now, I don't know, there's just this onslaught of 
everything all the time and you always kind of feel like you're missing out on something. Mm -hmm. And for the longest time, all anybody had to do was try to make money and not die. You know, like I need to find food today. I need to feed my kids and I need to not die. Right. And that was like a struggle enough. Mm -hmm. And now you're like, oh, fucking, I need to, I need to check my Instagram or, you know, like there's just so many more distractions now. Life isn't as hard Mm -hmm. as it ever has been. Life is pretty easy. Yeah. Living in this country, at least like it's really not that hard. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the things that I like to, to kind of poke back at people who are really, you know, high on the, the kind of, uh, the liberatory power of, of capitalism or neoliberal capitalism about how this sort of like, you know, liberates us from the kind of struggle, the, the, uh, subsistence struggle that people had to, you know, deal with prior to us, like in, you know, farming your own plot or being a hunter gatherer or something like that. And I don't want to, I also don't, you know, don't want to pretend like I'm some kind of like a, you know, a, a noble savage romanticist, you know, like I don't, I'm not like uh, the Jared Diamond type saying, let's go back to the hunter gatherer lifestyle. But like, you know, like, like, have you ever been hunting? Like people do that for fun now. It's like, (laughs) it's, it's, it's not necessarily, you know, like that we can go to the store, you know, like, is that a great trade for like, you know, like going out on a hunting party every third day with the, with the boys in the village? Like, I I don't think so, but Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's not an excuse to say like, oh, it's all, let's, you know, like be Luddite smash technology and go back into sort of you know, rural hunter-gatherer uh, type societies, but it's also worth thinking about, you know, like how liberatory are some of these things that, you know, that get paraded around as the magic of, of sort of a capitalist social structure, the the way that, you know, um, you know, the way that we subsist is so much easier, but like, God, it is so much more boring too. And, you know, we're just, we're just kind of working jobs now, right? Like that's the struggle. It's that's, just yeah, getting that's, through your day, sitting in front of a computer, clicking your mouse. Exactly. And I I can't remember if I read it or I heard it on a podcast, but it like really struck me deeply. And I think about it all the time and it relates to time and it relates to your time versus money. And when you have a job where somebody pays you $25 an hour, you are essentially selling your life, an hour of your life, for a $25 amount. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so that's that's what's so weird about how we exist now is that you're, you're determining how much value your life and your time has. And some people can't um, – they can't do anything about that. I mean, if, if you have no skills or you, you have no ambition, you just end up working wherever you work. But like, that's what I feel like a lot of people should ask themselves a lot of times. It's like, is one hour of my life worth $15? Mm-hmm. Cause that's what they're paying me. Is that what I'm going to do? You're going to be dead in, you know, another 40, 50 years. Are you going to sell an hour of your life in increments for $15. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the, the whole, the whole notion of work, you know, of selling your labor for, I guess, renting your labor for, um, you know, the means of subsistence is, is the, the terms that, you know, like Marx put it in, um, is very, you know, soul crushing, demoralizing for individuals. It's, you know, no wonder that it's very difficult for people to, you know, like find meaning in their lives, you know, like when people that, you know, like work, 
nice jobs and get to sling takes on the internet and that's really all they have to do is just sit down in their study you know with their monocle and sipping a martini and write about how like well actually precarity is good you know like uh, (laughs) these people like very few people actually get to have that experience you know and everybody else is kind of getting gaslit left and right Mm -hmm. about like this being you know sort of the ideal the ideal structure for society Mm -hmm. Um, and we all know it's fake but we also sort of feel on a very base level there's very little that any individual can do about it. And that's because there is very little that any individual can do about it. You know, it, it requires a kind of, uh, a kind of solidarity, you know, an understanding of kind of like, we're all experiencing this together. We're all kind of like feeling crushed in this way. And it's not, you know, it's not, um, this isn't something any of us want, you know, it's something that we're all kind of captives to. Yeah. I don't know what the answer is though. I know, I know people who, I mean, ideally, or at least what we're told is that you work your entire life and you make enough money and you put enough in your 401k that you can retire and live out your glory days, you Mm -hmm. know, sipping martinis with your monocle or whatever. (laughs) Uh, But I know so many people that reach that age and they can't do that. Mm -hmm. They still need something to do. Uh, My dad is a perfect example. He retired at like... God, he must have been like 57, 58. He started driving Uber. He doesn't need money. Mm-hmm. He just wanted something to do. Mm-hmm. There's some innate desire in humans to perform tasks and be appreciated for them or be compensated uh, in one way or another. And I don't I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with this. <laughs> uh, I don't know, man. Like what <clears throat> is – what is better? What 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 could we do differently? Well, I mean, I think what you're what you're uh, sort of gesturing to there is something that everybody feels innately. You know, Marx had a theory for this. Uh, basically, the whole of human history is that you know, like like to, man does work on the environment in order to meet his needs. You know, um, pardon the gendered language, but those are the words that he used. And um, you know, he he really like he and and others of the socialist tradition, you know, like really uh, have this, this sort of like understanding that humans, you know, like, like in opposition to the way that, you know, like a far right conservative viewpoint of, you know, like uh, human, human desire and human um, capacity is that, you know, like, well, if you liberate people from work, they'll all just be lazy and play video games and do nothing. Mm -hmm. I think that's wrong. And, you know, a lot of people have been telling us for some time that like people will do this, if it's not like, but if it's not for like right now, we're doing work because it's the thing that meets our needs, mm-hmm. right? So you you'll be pushed into any job if the alternative is starving or mm-hmm. dying because you can't go to a hospital. But like, if you just have your needs met, maybe you'll spend more time gaming. I don't know, but I think a lot of people, I I think myself included, would you know probably go fix like there's work to do out there mm-hmm. you know but it's not like you know like doing hedge fund index you know like trying to tank GameStop the mm-hmm. the work is the the roads the buildings the people don't have houses the yeah. you know like there's there's so much work to do that's not being done because it's not valued or you know like not invested with the the kind of value that you know like an individual or a collective of individuals that live in a community might see it having uh, you know we have to look at it through the lens of a corporation and their profit margin yeah, there are a lot of jobs that should not exist. Mm-hmm. Hedge fund managers, <laughs> for sure. 
yeah. uh, trading on the stock market. I don't see the intrinsic societal value of that. There are a lot of things that that hold no benefit to people as a whole. Mm-hmm. But because you can make so much money doing them, uh, it, it exists. And that's the other disappointing part is that when you consolidate wealth in that manner, you're able to influence people who write rules and laws. And so you, you get in this this cycle where you can't really change anything if you're not wealthy. You're, I mean, you really only have a card at the, at the table or a, I forget what analogy I was going with. You really only have a way to influence someone based on how much money you have. Uh, I mean, I don't think democracy is real. <laughs> right. You know? Well, democracy certainly like doesn't feel real in a period of time when, you know, neoliberal capitalism specifically has really, you know, kind of run roughshod over the whole project because, you know, there was a period of time when like the welfare state did exist in this country, um, you know, in a more robust way than it does now. Um, it, it's, it's interesting to note that it existed in a time when, you know, the global West was at war in a cold war with you know the communist world the the global east i suppose the first versus second worlds and um you know it was it was a struggle uh, to sort of prove to the rest of the world the third world if you will that there was you know like the this system is the best way to improve the lives of other people of the people in your society and you know 50s 60s 70s you know you have kind of like um you know, lots of uh, welfare state policies that, you know, run the gamut from like basically fully subsidized colleges and stuff like that um, to to increase the, the um, you know, the, the uh, I, I got what, individual capital or the, the, the um, I guess this this the skills basket that any individual would possess within your country so that that country can like innovate further and that sort of thing. Um, you know, you, there are better home loan policies or all kinds of stuff, you know, must also be stated veneered over like really racist exclusionary policies at the same time. So mm-hmm. like this isn't something to venerate or anything like that. But, you know, like like along come the 80s, um, moving through the 90s and like everything gets disinvested in. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it is it it is definitely true that, you know, like in like not not even in capitalism, like a more welfare oriented capitalism, like a Keynesian kind of system, not in neoliberal capitalism, just like in any society, like the individual has very little power at all. You mm-hmm. know, like, uh, you know, like the, the individual, um, you know, sort of confronts the world in a in a powerless sort of uh, way and only gains power through um, sort of solidarity and, and social cohesion and, and kind of movement building with other people. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the thing that wealthy people have. They can like, oh, you need money to eat. Here's some money. You're on my side now, right? Yep, you are. Cool. Let's do that. And just kind of reproduces that all over the place. And you get coalitions sort of like ready-made by paying people off and, and kind of co-opting them onto your side. And, and, you know, when everything gets boiled down to like, you know, like, well, some people have tons of money and lots of people don't have a lot of money. Like, you know, it, it's very easy to to divide and conquer and, or, you know, like not conquer in a sort of, you know, I don't want to sound like conspiratorial and like we're mm-hmm. all being kind of like conquered in a, in a kind of a, you know, conspiracy theory sort of sense. But like, you know, power is much easier to wield through money mm-hmm. when just 
some people, one or two or one percent have most of it. Well, it's easier to make money when you have money. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, I mean, once you once you cross a certain threshold, you can just continue to exponentially grow your 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 bank account or whatever. But I mean, also you can't really fault. I mean, I'm not saying capitalism is a great method and I don't think it will last that long, but you can't fault someone for being ambitious and making the right decisions to increase their wealth. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like that's the American dream is that you have an idea, you figure out how to sell that idea, and then you make money off of it. Some people are much better at it than others. Mm -hmm. And then once you reach reach a certain level – you can continue to grow it, like we said. Um, but uh, I don't know. Uh, socialism is a dirty word. Yeah. And I'm not saying it it, it should be or it shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. But people have this preconceived notion of what it is and uh, turn it into some fucking Stalin-esque uh, uh, breadline, freezing in the cold idea that – Everything is everybody's and nobody has anything more than anyone else. Mm-hmm. And that's why that's why it doesn't work in this country because people have this idea that they work harder than everyone else and that there are always going to be people who are trying to take from them. Mm-hmm. And it is you, – you can't really overcome it. There, there's, a, there's a mindset among certain people that helping someone is wrong. Because they're not trying hard enough. It's weird. I'd be curious to see a, I don't know if such a poll exists, but I'd be curious to see if people would respond to a question that is kind of constructed in that way. Like, is helping someone wrong? Or like, is helping someone who can't or won't, I think won't is is specific, like should be focused on there, who won't work, you know, like to their full potential as you see it. Mm-hmm. Um is it wrong to help them? Yeah. I think I think a lot of people would say you should still help them, um, but that's just conjecture. I don't know, but but I think you're absolutely right about you know socialism being a dirty word, and I resisted that for that conclusion for some time because I you know I don't want it I don't want it to be true. You know, <laughs> yeah. I want to be able to be like, no, well, the socialism can work here, and we're going to do it, and everybody like socialism's good, right? But the historic, the specific historical, you know, uh, dynamics of the United States, I think, have sort of shown us and, and created the conditions uh, as such that it is just seen negatively, and there's really not a whole lot that you know anybody who advocates for you know like the a, a socialist um, uh, politics. Um, can really, you can't deny that. And so one thing that I think is very interesting that I've heard some more, um, you know, discussion about and and some numbers, some polling numbers about is like, if you say things like, I want to institute a socialist healthcare policy versus I think everybody should get free healthcare from the government. Like one of those, the first <laughs> socialist healthcare policy pulls very poorly. Mm-hmm. Free shit from the government, free insert anything here from the government <laughs> pulls really well. So yeah. you know, I actually don't think we need to be talking about socialism in America anymore. Let's just let's just get rid of that word. It's fine. I'm not married to it. I don't need it. Uh, just say like we need free shit from the government. And when someone comes back around and being like, hey, uh, that guy's trying to do socialism, I'm not saying anything about socialism. Yeah, I'm just saying you should get free shit from the government because we're the richest country in the world. 
there, there are certain things that you should provide for people and help them out with because I, I, I'm not a financial person. I don't understand all the, the specifics behind it, but there's got to be somebody smarter than me that, that can explain it. Um, if you help people and bring everyone to a certain level, it benefits society. If, if you allow things to continue as they are, then you have people who, who need to steal things. To, to feed their family, who will break in your car and steal your stereo. Uh, you've got a ridiculous amount of people who have nothing, who are sleeping in tents underneath bridges all over Portland. Mm-hmm. You have to figure out a way to help these people because it's fucking ruining it for everyone else. And I don't know what all of those steps are to take, but it doesn't – it doesn't mean you're creating a disservice to society if you offer a portion of your paycheck to help out other people who may be mentally ill or maybe lost their job. Like there, there's a number of reasons you could help somebody and there is just this this over politicizing. Everything has become so politicized, mm-hmm. like even COVID. It's mm-hmm. fucking ridiculous. Wearing masks, you yeah. know, like everything is a left or right slant or has a left or right slant. And that benefits people who are in charge of those institutions or, the, or those those parties because they can use it against other people. And that's that's the disappointing thing is like not everything has to be political. Like you can just – like you said, if you just ask somebody, is it wrong to help somebody? Mm-hmm. No one's going to say, is it wrong to help somebody? Uh, yes. You know, no <laughs> yeah. one's going to say that, right. you know, um, you just have to rephrase it a different way. Yeah. It, I think it, part of it is, yeah, kind of re reimagining these kinds of, com- reimagining these conversations in a way that feel less overtly like tied to a political identity specifically, like, you know, tied to like something that is typically Democrat or typically Republican and just kind of get more back down to like a, a, a individual values kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and we speak almost entirely, like values have been completely scrubbed from our political dialogue these mm-hmm. days. Uh, we're, we're almost never talking about them in, in, in such a specific way. Um, but you know, like, like one of the things that's, you know, in the constitution or, you know, I think in a lot, a lot of constitutions is, you know, a right to life, liberty, and happiness. Now, you know, like what is required for life, right? You need food, you need shelter, you need somebody to take care of you when you're sick. Um, you know, like those three, like if you just extrapolate one step out from like person has a right to life, you know, like, oh, well, well, then they have a right to these other things because if they don't have these things then they're not going to live. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, once you go even further, you can, you know, do that exercise even further out. And so, you know, it's, 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 it's so easy right now to just sort of speak in these high abstractions about, you know, like uh, whether or not, um, you know, there is or is not a deserving poor or something mm-hmm. like that. And, and instead to just ask, like, should a person who just doesn't want to work should they just die? Like, is that okay? Is it okay for that person to just die? Yeah. Um, and you know, like, like it's it's uh, it, on the one hand, it kind of feels almost like a trolling question, but it's a serious one. It's it's one in which, like, you if you take seriously the idea that you know there shouldn't be a robust welfare state, and you know, like, people shouldn't have access to you know food if they if they simply you know won't work. You know, like like even, let's let's take the worst example. They won't work. They just refuse to do it. Should that person 
be given a death sentence, you know, yeah. and and people don't see it in that way. It's mm-hmm. been very obscured um, from that kind of uh, sort of, again, a, a kind of values way of looking at it. Mm-hmm. Do we value a human life regardless of its sort of worth in the economy? Yeah. Yeah. And there, there's also an inability to to take these current uh, laws and rules and regulations that were written some 300 years ago mm-hmm. on fucking parchment paper by lawyers with and the, with the feather. By the way, yeah, yeah. It's like, how long are we going to pretend that that is the Ten Commandments for this country, and that nothing has changed? Like, we drive cars, we have computers in our pockets that can answer any question you have. Uh, we fly in airplanes. We have an unbelievable amount of technology that is different from when they wrote those documents in 1776 or 1780, whenever it was, you know. Um, I don't know the date. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe James Madison had some very advanced opinions on Twitter mobs and cancel culture. We don't, we don't know. That might have been one of the Federalist Papers, one of the less read. It's <laughs> so insane papers. that we're still like, <laughs> The Constitution. It's like, <laughs> do you know how much has changed since then? Like, I mean, iOS for my for my phone has been updated twice in the last year and a half. Right. Like, why are we still following this document that was written 300 years ago yeah. and refusing to change anything about it? Yeah. It's so insane. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I mean, like, it's, I guess the, the, uh, the, a response to that would be like, well, it can be amended. There's a process for that. But like society has evolved in such a way that that's pretty much impossible. You know, yeah. like try to amend the constitution for any reason right now. It's just not going to happen, you know. And Dude, it, I went through the amendments uh, the other day. I just went down this wormhole. You, you notice how lame they get as you go forward in yeah. time? <laughs> they're they're basically not changing anything. <laughs> yeah. The last couple, one of them was like uh, something – Something about when they could vote. Senator pay raises. Or something like that. Yeah, it was something so ridiculous. I'm like, who cares? That doesn't do anything. The last major one was uh, prohibition and the repeal Mm -hmm. of prohibition. Yeah, it has to be like in 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 the here and now, it has to be so benign. You know that it cannot change society in any way whatsoever. Yeah. You know, and and I think one of the things that that that's difficult for people. One of the reasons we have so much, you know. I don't know, a reason why there are a lot of problems and kind of like dissatisfaction with, you know, I mean, not just the government, but sort of life in society at large is that it feels like it just it can't change. Nothing can change. And yet people, I think, have this understanding that things need to, you know, things really need to move on. People need to feel less, you know, sort of lorded over by their bosses. People need to feel like they have more personal control, kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier. How many people that are in poverty, you know, working low wage jobs, maybe two, feel like they even have the time or energy to do the thing that, you know, like a right-wing pundit would say they need to do and, you know, go look for better jobs. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a no-win situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, you know, like I think one of the reasons why kind of the increase in, in sort, of, uh, sort of social strife and, and a reason why maybe something like COVID becomes politicized in the first place is this kind of feeling of complete disconnection from, you know, like the, the political possibilities versus – you know, like what needs to happen to just feel better, mm-hmm. um, you know, to not feel like my job could just go away. Or if I, you know, don't put up with this just incredible disrespect from my boss, then I no longer can pay my rent. Yeah. 
yeah, there's there, there's always something to lose, and that's what keeps you there. It's it's a fear based lifestyle, and I don't know everything everything that's happened recently is just kind of it's had a real profound impact on me where I just don't care anymore. Like mm-hmm. I don't want to lose my job right now, mm-hmm. but if I went to work tomorrow and my boss said I was fired, I honestly would not care. Mm-hmm. I don't care. There is so there are there, there are so many things happening that are bigger than my job or any part of my life. I don't care because mm-hmm. it the inability to perform normal life tasks is so oppressive. It, it, it's unbearable. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, y- well, it's like you're supposed to go to your job and kind of do what you were doing prior to the pandemic. Like, like society hasn't fundamentally turned on a dime, or not turned on a dime, but as I said before, kind of quickly declined even further, or at least your outlook on the social situation. Mm-hmm. Pretend like that hasn't happened and perform like you were, you know, <laughs> 2019. Well, exactly. Well, and based on which state you live in, the rules are different. Yeah. I mean, you have governors with an immense amount of power to decide who can and cannot operate and who can and cannot go to school. And it's just so weird, man. It's mm-hmm. <laughs> it's unprecedented. Yeah. Yeah. And just the, the, the feeling like nobody knows what's what to do. Even the people in charge don't know what to do. No, I, of course I, they don't. I remember somebody saying that, you know, like – Pointing out that one state was sort of like increasing their restrictions and a neighboring state was decreasing their restrictions. But the state that was increasing their restrictions allowed more people in a single gathering than the state that was decreasing their restrictions. And so it's- For an imaginary line. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Same thing's happening in in the Portland area. Like Multnomah County has been far more restrictive on a ton of different things. There are counties that butt right up to Multnomah County. It's an imaginary line. Mm -hmm. And Multnomah County is held at a different standard than everything else. Mm -hmm. It does not make any sense. I mean, they're they're trying to to pull data from the numbers based on who is reporting that they got sick in a certain county. But, like, it's not like nobody's traveling across those counties. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's like I – I would love to read the history book in 50 years about what's going on now because, mm-hmm. like, no one knows what they're doing. Right. Yeah. No one knows. How would how would they disguise that, right? That's, that's one question I wonder because a lot of the time we read some pretty sanitized history and we don't even know it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> how, yeah. How, how will this be spun by the, by the great centrist uh, historians of the future yeah, that, like that when, see uh, this as, oh, how can we make it seem like people actually did know what they were doing? Yeah, like when Columbus showed up and yeah. brought great treats for all the Indians. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right, so – we went off on a tangent, which was a good tangent, but I'm all about uh, it. Since we're we're at about 140 right now, we're going to wrap it up in the next 15 or so. Um, I want to try to get back to we were talking about you uh, going. You avoided the Panama Canal and went down south, and then you came back. Mm-hmm. And so you you said you were on a six month contract, six year. S- sorry, six year contract. Yes. And then and at then, that point, you knew you were done. You were getting out. Yeah, it was within the first couple of years, I think, that I felt like I was, uh, you know, sort of really over it. I had 
seen what there was to offer there, uh, understood fully and didn't want any part of it. Um, it was really hot. I mean, like, you know, I, I'm always, I'm pretty self-critical and I'm always sort of like, yeah, I was a pretty shitty person <laughs> or not a shitty person, but kind of a, a shitty kid, kind of disrespectful, sort of didn't really look up to the things you're supposed to look up to, um, very well or, um, you know, with reverence or anything like that. So mm-hmm. I just, you know, like I, I wanted to be myself. I wanted to be an individual. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so, so I went ahead and, and, you know, like through some friends, I, I was I was uh, particularly plugged into the San Diego cycling community um, at the time. Like bicycles, know, yeah, hipsters on bikes, and uh, <laughs> nice. and uh, met a guy who was a who was a chief, um, a personnel chief, um, who you know basically walked me through the process of shortening my contract by a year when nobody else in my command would do it. They were all because it's like like you know big navy wants to get rid of personnel. They've got you know. Uh, like a, a, a payroll crisis, more or less, going on. They've got hmm. more people than they can afford to pay hmm. um, for what they need. Because um, I mentioned at the beginning of this that I was I was brought in or I enlisted during a kind of a, a push. Yeah. Um, well, I got out during a squeeze when they were trying to get rid of people, okay. and there were like involuntary separations that they were doing, where basically like, oh, your evaluation was pretty bad this year. Sorry, you're not in anymore. <laughs> uh, was pretty bad for for a lot of people that wanted a career in it. Yeah. But then they had voluntary ones too, and hmm. you know, uh, your ship was almost never incentivized to let you go voluntarily. So nobody, everybody was stonewalling me. So I had, I don't know how, it still blows my mind to this day that that I managed to, you know, get a chief or two on my side and completely other commands that I knew through my personal life only yeah. um, to kind of work on this and communicate with the, you know, the personnel people in Tennessee and, you know, basically get my contract shortened. Um, and I found out, you know, I think year four and a half that I was going to be getting out at five, um, nice. which was... You know, pretty great news. Yeah. Um, I got, I found that out while I was deployed. I got back um, from my deployment in sort of mid 2012 and then got out in September of that year. Nice. And um, so, did you know what you were going to do after that? Oh, no, man. I floated. <laughs> I was uh, getting at like transitioning, like the whole adjustment is really rough. And, you know, like I had it better than a lot of other people because, you know, like I was on a boat. We did weird stuff that didn't necessarily like, you know, make you really able to deal with like, you know, a more normal like civilian life pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you wind up having a little bit more anxiety and, and feeling, you know, like things are a lot more serious than they tend to be. Uh, but yeah, but but that that's just that's very difficult and and you know hard to to anticipate or even you know sort of describe. Um, but you have a specific skill set now, so that, that's probably beneficial when you're applying for jobs, right? Yeah, but I had to go to school to fully leverage that because I didn't have a degree when I joined the Navy. Mm-hmm. I was a college dropout, mm-hmm. and so I did eventually go to UCLA for my undergrad. Um, I moved from San Diego with my wife. Um, to to Los Angeles. Uh, She went and got her master's degree. And then after that, I went to UCLA and got my bachelor's in geography. Hmm. And, you know, without that degree, it was one of those things where like the field is so like the field of, you know, like geographic information systems and, and, you know, geospatial um, data analysis is so specialized. You just having experience, you know, is 
not the most, uh, you really need a degree at the least. Um, but you know, I was ready for that. I went to, uh, I went to school like with that in mind, or mm-hmm. I went into the Navy with, in, with the, uh, plan in mind of going to school after that. And I wound up, you know, turning that money into, excuse me, turning the, um, turning the, uh, GI bill into a bachelor's and master's degree, um, which is awesome. The GI bill is a great deal. Uh, well, explain that. The GI Bill is so it used to be called the Montgomery GI Bill. Uh, you would get something like forty thousand dollars for like all of your combined educational expenses, and it wasn't a great or it was a great deal in like nineteen eighty, <laughs> but it's yeah, not right. a great deal in you know twenty or two thousand seven. So actually, when I signed up, um, they had just transitioned to the uh, to the post nine eleven GI Bill, which was, I think, introduced by Martin O'Malley, the guy who like ran against Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders in the primary back in twenty sixteen. Just really? like Yeah, that like Republican kind of like like hot dog neck beefcake guy is like, oh, I'm <laughs> I actually uh, I, I did the post nine eleven GI Bill. Oh, oh okay, I'll, I'll leave. Um he he wasn't on the scene for very long, but I remember hearing him talk about that. I was like, oh hey, thanks man. I yeah. appreciate that. Yeah. Um but yeah the post nine eleven GI Bill is a program that you gain access to after serving after a certain date and for a certain amount of time and then having a specific kind of discharge, basically honorable discharge. Don't get kicked out for something dumb. Mm-hmm. And then um, from that point on, you know, when you enroll in a school, the the Department of Veteran Affairs pays your tuition straight to the school and then you get a housing stipend. And so over the five years, I believe, that I, you know, used this program to get my um, bachelor's and then master's because I did two years for my BA having transferred and then three, I was a three-year master's to my, to my shame, but, um, uh, I was getting paid, <laughs> taking that all the way to the bank. So I was getting paid the whole time. <laughs> I got about $115,000 out of that. Damn. Um, you know, which, uh, which is, a, like I said, a great deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, after getting out of school, like I got a lot of good experience, uh, you know, teaching and doing research and, you know, just doing the things that you get to do in grad school, um, kind of becoming very, very varied, you know, you're both specializing, but also trying a lot of different things at the Mm -hmm. same time. Um, as a 29 year old, right? Uh, is that what you said earlier? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I went into, I went into my undergrad as 29 year old. I think I started my grad school as 31, Uh but yeah, from 29 to like 34 was basically, um, you know, just, Getting free money from the government, you know, nice. and, and uh, uh, it's it's um, it was a great opportunity. It was a really weird kind of like coming to fruition of these plans that I had set in place years and years before, because you start something like that and like you get, you know, like you get four years into your enlistment, you know, you, you remember back like, oh, I joined the Navy because I wanted to go to school. I don't even know if I want to do that anymore. Like this don't, doesn't even seem worth it. Like I want to go be a carpenter or some shit. Yeah. It just, you know, like I yeah. want to work with my hands. I, if I've learned anything, I hate sitting at this stupid desk here in this office. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet you can't pass up the opportunity when you get the acceptance letter from UCLA, I guess. No, that's great. Um, so then did you take your skills as uh, somebody who uses satellite imagery to, to see boats in Somalia? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Did you take that specialized skill and turn it into a career? Is that kind of what you do now? Yeah. So the, the, the work in the Navy that I did really kind of 
set me up for set up my interest you know like i said earlier you really need to have an interest in something to like keep going back to the library and like studying it in school like you can force yourself like people can force themselves i'm not very good at that you know i need to have a personal interest and so like like you know international politics um uh, satellite photography, just geographic information systems in general, um, you know, like computer maps and stuff. It was all stuff that, you know, like kind of my interest got peaked in through that experience of being in the Navy. Mm-hmm. It was something that, you know, like when I was when I was going on um, about being in like, community college or, or even just before going to San Francisco State, I, you know, I didn't have any any like overriding interests. I picked something because it seemed like it made money. Yeah. But this time, you know, going into it to, to bring this conversation full circle, going into it as a 29 year old, you know, having been exposed to the world and been, you know, forced to do something um, and sort of see options out there. Yeah. Um, you know, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And all I wanted to do was go to school and get a bachelor's degree that proved I know how to do, you know, satellite stuff and get a job doing it. And, you know, like, well, why not do a master's at the same time? It'll keep paying me. Sure. <laughs> it'll be more employable. Mm-hmm. But, you know, ultimately the the kind of overriding thought there was like, like, now I know and now I'm equipped to like actually take advantage of this. You know, like this is a good investment. This is a good use of my time. And it turned out to be. Um, so, you know, I'm very grateful to have gotten the opportunity to like fail young, <laughs> get a second chance and and try again as an older person because, you know, I, I can only imagine so many people drop out of college um, you know, in their younger years and just, just never, never make their way back. And, you know, maybe they're, maybe they feel fulfilled in their whatever careers that they, uh, found, maybe they found a trade or something like that. But I think a lot of people wind up doing shitty customer service and kind of, you know, have a hard time looking back on that, that, that choice. And, you know, but for the grace of God, go, I, it could have been me. Mm-hmm. Um, I could be a barista <laughs> again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what do you do on a day-to-day basis for for your job, if you can explain that <clears throat> yeah. without being a thing? Is that cool? Yeah, no, that's fine. Um, so my job is uh, – I I guess I, I would call myself an aerial imagery technician. Um, photogrammetrist is another term for that. It sort of means like measuring uh, space on the ground using aerial photography. Um, and – the the firm that I work for makes maps of um, makes maps of um, basically large areas where things are going to be built. Um, so we deal with like the very large scale. Like uh, one of our bread and butter project areas is um, wind farms, solar farms. Okay. Uh, we do a lot of green energy in eastern Oregon, eastern Washington, parts of California. Vestas. Uh, Vestas. I don't know. You don't know Vestas. No. They're, they're a windmill company, or they're an energy company. Um, I'm not familiar with that company. Uh, there are a couple other companies that we work for. One's called Avangrid, which um, I think works mostly in like Texas right now, but hmm. parts of the Midwest. Um, it very well could be. You know, I, I'm I'm at sort of a part in the process where, you know, like I just basically. <laughs> I basically see the name of a project and that's all the information I know about it, you know, and sometimes it's a place, you know, like one project I worked on was just called Kubler to Delaney, which was the exits Kubler to Delaney over by Enchanted Forest on the five freeway. Gotcha. Um, So I'm, 
it, it could be that that we work for a company like that, but there are a few competing, you know, like firms that do what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, so essentially, there's a satellite in space orbiting the Earth that you guys probably don't own. You probably use somebody else's satellite, right? It takes an image, you evaluate it, and determine how how large the area is and where people could install those windmills. So actually, we don't use satellites. We use um, planes. We uh-huh. own a couple of planes, uh, Cessnas, uh, like turboprops, wow. with um, like large format digital cameras that stick down out of the bottom of the plane. Wow. And then we'll be contracted to fly over a certain area where something is going to be built. Maybe a freeway overpass or something like that is going to be in, in, um, installed. Maybe, yeah, like wind farms, solar farms, or maybe it's just like, you know, a city, like yeah. the city of, of, of Reading or something like that wants, you know, a big, very high resolution photo of their whole area. But mm-hmm. it's like we're talking such a large area that a single frame wouldn't do it. Yeah. Right. So we take a whole bunch of pictures in sort of oriented in lines, right? So as the plane flies in a straight line, it's it's uh, snapping pictures incrementally. Mm-hmm. Um, building a, a sort of series of photos that are overlapping each other. Mm-hmm. And then um, once we get all that imagery in, uh, after it's all taken and kind of goes through processing to get, have like the color um, sort of touched up and that sort of thing, then... They need to be sort of fit together very perfectly. Yeah. Um, you can't have like a road going and then you go to the other frame and it's you know, sure. sort of like uh, 30 feet to the north of that. Um, and so uh, we will construct 3D models hmm. by kind of overlaying adjacent photos and then finding, you know, like places where on the one photo the same feature exists and saying like, okay, this spot right here is the exact same spot on the ground as this spot over here. Have you ever used Lightroom? No, but uh, I believe that that's a that's one of those 3D reconstruction softwares, kind of like uh, Agisoft, um, Metascan, that kind of stuff. It's just part of the Adobe Creative Suite, you know, like Photoshop. Yeah, but uh, it has a panorama that will stitch things together. Yeah. I just assume you're doing it on a much larger scale. Yeah, we use different we use different programs, but it's the same idea. And there there's a there's a whole like hobby community of people who do 3D reconstruction with photos of um, you know, like the this this beer bottle or something like mm-hmm. that, you know, take pictures of it from a bunch of different directions and then, you know, like hit a button and it'll kind of reconstruct it. Yeah. Um that's more or less the same process that we're doing. I, I would say that, you know, like the, the sort of beer bottle reconstruction is a, uh, is a newer application of this tech technology. You know, it yeah. used to be done uh, solely from, from um, aerial photography for basically creating um, uh, contour lines for elevation, mm-hmm. you know, just so you can see exactly what the, you know, what the contours of the terrain is, so you sure. know, what you need to flatten, what you need to fill and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And so most of what we do um, is just kind of like construct these 3D models that someone can look at in a computer space and just sort of see from a kind of bird's eye view and from all around mm-hmm. what exactly the, the undulation of the terrain is. But then also um, once that data is, you know, sort of once all those photos are stitched together, once you know exactly, you know, like how close or, you know, like like where everything is perfectly aligned – um, then we send it further down our process line to stuff I don't do um, yet. But, you know, like people will go in and make 3D line drawings, CAD drawings of 
whatever's on the ground. Like sure. you need to know that that pump jack is right there. You need to know that that electrical box is over there. Wow. You know, draw all the houses, all the all the curbs, all the paint lines. I mean, it's it's insane how much time this kind of thing takes. And you know, a lot of the time. We're outsourcing it to, you know, like India, where they can just throw a whole bunch of labor at it. Well, yeah. I mean, I imagine it's got to be extremely precise, right? Because they're de- they're determining where they're going to build items, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's got to be perfect. Yeah. Like transportation jobs are the ones that really blow my mind uh, as far as how precise they need to be. Because like, you know, like I said, photogrammetry sort of defined as measuring something on the ground from aerial photography you can't just take a girder that you're going to use to install a bypass yeah. or, you know, a freeway overpass. You can't just take that girder out, you know, hold it up and be like, oh, yeah, it looks like it needs to be about there. Cut it <laughs> yeah. there, you know, like draw the line. You need to have that piece already cut perfectly. And yeah. if it's like, you know, six centimeters short, oops, <laughs> yeah, that's not going to work. Uh, you can't add that back either. Not easily. Yeah. Um, and so, so yeah, like the, the precisions that we work with, I mean, in graduate school, you're just... You know, they're like, ah, a couple meters, that's fine. You know, but like we have to be within a centimeter um, yeah. in in this job, which is pretty crazy to me. And the what's the largest area you've ever compiled a photo for? Like 10 square miles or something? That's an, that's an interesting question. I'd be curious to know that um, myself. I, I guess the one of the biggest ones that I've done personally um, – Oh gosh, uh, we do all kinds of stuff up in Washington, um, sort of taking taking pictures of uh, of rivers and oh no 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 okay sorry, uh, you know the fires that were happening this last summer yeah uh, we got a lot of contracts for that. Um, so you were taking photos of areas to determine how big the spread was of the fire. Yeah, so yeah. that so that people could look um, sort of at the at the burn what what was burned and what wasn't burned. But basically so they could, you know, like sort of do an analysis of of where they needed to send crews to do, you know, I don't know, a, a deadwood removal or you mm-hmm. know, places where uh, where there might have been dangerous, you know, smoldering uh, conditions. I, I'm not entirely sure what they use the data for. We don't really do analysis ourselves. We just kind of like we're the tech guys that sort of like, they're like, we need something that's really hard to get because it requires planes and compilers and, you know, photogrammetrists and stuff. Uh, we just want your product. And we're like, okay, cool. Well, uh, you know, uh, we, we don't mess with the analysis, yeah. though that would be a lot of fun. I, I love, yeah. you know, doing photo analysis. But, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, really just uh, that was, I don't know, I guess um, it's easy easiest for me to like measure the size of an area by the number of photos that we take. And I guess... Depending on the flying height of the plane, you know, the, the photo can cover, um, you know, like an acre to a couple of acres. Okay. And um, I guess the biggest one I've done is 2,500 photos. Whoa. Uh, and that was the, um, that was Highway 224 that was affected by the fire um, huh. in this last year. Wow. That's huge. It, it was, it was, and it was wild, you know, like when you, when you, uh, when you're, you know, just working, kind of stitching the photos together, like you're actually looking at the photos themselves in a 3D space. And so like, you know, I could see, you know, like the, these houses when they get run over by a fire, it looks like, you know, they like got bombed or something like they're mm-hmm. exploded more yeah. or less. There's just like stuff scattered all around them, kind of burned down to the foundations. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's pretty wild. Yeah, man. Cool. All right. Well, I think we should wrap it up. Uh, so I appreciate you uh, coming up here, hanging out with me. Appreciate you having me. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, man. It's good times. Thank you. Thanks.